Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. Has the new American gone secessionist? Well, it seems that way, or at least they've gone Calhounian. I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page. We can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. But again, use the coupon code June. Get 25% off all my classes in June of 2023. The price is going up in July, so you want to take advantage of that while you can. Get these prices for the lowest classes, I should say, for the lowest price you're ever going to see them in June of 2023. Use the coupon code JUNE. It's simple and painless. You purchase classes. You keep this podcast free of charge. You support the program, and you get great content on the back end. You can also click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the heart button. On the YouTube video, if you're watching on YouTube, you can go to Spotify for podcasters and become a member there. Lots of great ways to support the show financially. But as always, painlessly rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so people know you love it. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Share it around on social media. Let people know you love it. Send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear, and that gets more eyes and ears on the show. Now, this is actually a listener-generated episode, and I was a little shocked by this. So if you're not familiar with the John Birch Society, that's uh, a long-standing 20th century conservative organization. And generally, they've been very Lincolnian and nationalist in their positions. They've been anti-secession. Uh, and that has always been the rub with the John Birch Society and other groups. They're economic nationalists. They don't really like uh, they've generally sided more with Hamilton or Lincoln than they would have with anything in the South. So I found this piece to be absolutely fascinating. This is by the editorial board at the New American, which is their magazine, right? This is the John Birch Society magazine, writing a piece that is praising John C. Calhoun nullification and secession. I mean, I don't know what's going on out there. I don't know if the New American has gone in a different direction. They've realized that most of their readers would have been in line with this sentiment anyways, and they've just kind of gotten on board with that. But this is fascinating that the New American, that the John Birch Society, has decided to come out and accept a Calhounian vision of America. Now, the title of this piece is remarkably, uh, Can John C. Calhoun Save America? Now, I've, I've done podcasts on that topic. I've talked about Calhoun in all kinds of places. And I think Calhoun is the person that, as conservatives, Americans should be looking to if we want to get that governmental foundation. Because Calhoun was very concerned 
about government of numerical majority, majorities or numerical majoritarianism. That's what he was concerned about more than anything else. He thought a government that way that ran on those principles would always devolve into tyranny. And so he was trying to devise a, a, some type of check on that kind of system. And what you see, we talked about with last week with the leftist attack on courts, is that what they don't really want, they love majoritarianism at the national level, quote-unquote national level, because they think they control that. And they do, right? I mean, look at the latest debt deal. The Republicans just buckled. They gave the Democrats virtually everything they wanted. And so the Democrats and the left control, in majoritarian terms, the center. What they also want to do is knock out the states. This is their whole proposal. We're, we're going to make sure that the Supreme Court cannot invalidate any federal laws, but it can invalidate state laws. You see, this is they realize that the states are the last hedge, the last block in their entire crazy agenda. It's it. That's it. So if they could get rid of that, even though conservative judges, as I talked about this week, are going to do the same thing that the leftists would do. I mean, this is just, I mean, it, it's, it's what to expect. But they realize that. So a national program, which is something the John Birch Society has advocated for years, right? I mean, the John Birch Society has always been very nationalist uh, and very Hamiltonian, very Lincolnian, to come out and write this piece about John C. Calhoun saving America and actually looking at Calhoun's solution to uh, check majoritarian government is fascinating to me. Does that mean we're winning? I don't know. You've still got this West Coast Straussians running around saying that you know, we need to do more Lincoln. But maybe, just maybe, there's a crack in this Calhounian vision. Russell Kirk loved John C. Calhoun. Maybe there's a crack. Maybe there's a way. People are finally starting to wake up and realize, oh my gosh, if we go along with Lincoln and Hamilton, we're doomed. We're doomed. There's no way that the right can win in that particular type of American society. It's what Calhoun knew. It's why he said he was a conservative. And because he's a conservative, he's a states' rights man. He understood what was at stake in the 1840s when he said it. And of course, also, actually, he said that uh, in, in the 1830s. He understood what was at stake. He understood what was happening in America, even in the middle of the 19th century how majoritarian government was going to be dangerous long-term for conservatives in American society, not leftists. It's never dangerous for the left because America, as I said this week, does go kind of center-left. So they're always going to get their way. They're always going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing further down the road. They're going to adopt the old discarded you know, leftist narratives that seem to be outdated for the much more progressive left, but yet... They've now, uh, you know, um, made it to where these things are acceptable in society. They've they've softened everyone up to accept these things, and so you just take them. And I mentioned that the real ways to do it, of course, is uh, entertainment. Whether it's athletics, whether it's music, whether it's movies, it's entertainment that does these things. They soften you up. They make you accept it overall. So this particular piece I found fascinating. Again, the New American: Can John C. Calhoun Save America? And it's by the editorial board at the New American, not a particular writer. And I don't know who wrote it, which of the board wrote it, but somebody did. 
which I find fascinating. Again, some and this is this is from the editorial board. It's not just coming from a writer that okay, we're gonna publish this. No, this has the New American stamp on it, meaning this is what they think. This is the direction of the magazine and the and the organization, I guess, moving forward. So this subtitle, Calhoun on Government and Society. Calhoun was a brilliant expositor of the natural rights philosophy that rights to life, liberty, and property are God-given. The primary purpose of government is to secure these rights from domestic and foreign enemies of freedom and the realization that there is always a danger that governments can be perverted in a way that they destroy rather than protect these God-given rights. In this, his writings are very much in sync with a French contemporary of his, Frederick Bastier, who articulated his views of the natural rights philosophy in his famous book, The Law, published in 1850, the same year as the Disquisition. It also is the same year that both of these great men died. Now, Southerners read Bastier because it was translated by a Southerner. <laughs> um, so there were Southerners who were familiar with Bastier and uh, The Law, uh, and his views on economy and society. And by, by the way, it was translated by a woman in the South, not, not a man. So the piece continues to Calhoun. Society is ordained by God for our benefit. Government is created by men, and its only legitimate purpose is to secure our natural rights to life, liberty, and property. That is the purpose of constitutions, he said. However, the powers invested in governments to prevent injustice and oppression, he wrote in the Disquisition, Quote, will, if left unguarded, be by them converted into instruments to oppress the rest of the community. Government, after all, quote, has itself a strong tendency to disorder and abuse of its powers. This is reminiscent of Jefferson's dictum that a government big enough to give you everything you want is strong enough to take everything you have. Now, at McClanahan Academy, I do a whole class on, on John C. Calhoun. I cover all this there, too, by the way. You want to get that class. It's really good. Reading John C. Calhoun, just like I talked about reading the Radical Republicans, reading the Copperheads this week. You want to go out and get those classes. It will really give you an insight into these things as I cover these very important primary documents. So Calhoun was correct. Any type of a constitution, a government, that can prevent injustice will also become an, an instrument to oppress the rest of the community. So the piece continues, By society, Calhoun meant the myriad local communities established by Americans without direction by any government. As Clyde Wilson writes in Calhoun, a statesman for the 21st century, the original colonists were not wards or employees of government, but people who conquered a wilderness with their own labor and capital and at the risk of their own life and limb. They're citing Clyde Wilson in the New American. Fascinating. I found this fascinating. This is amazing. I don't know, who, again, I don't know who wrote this, what individual wrote this with the stamp of the New American, but this is great. Uh, so Clyde Wilson, this new book, Calhoun and Statesman for the 21st Century, I talked about it on this podcast. Um, it's, it's a, I mean, look, go out and get it. Clyde Wilson is the Calhoun scholar in America, even if others like Bob Elder and uh, Matthew Carp and some of these other people. Now, Elder's book on Calhoun isn't bad. It's not great, but it's not bad. He does get some things are, are good in it, but then others you're left wondering. Um, but Matthew Carp and, and people like that are just awful. Uh, but 
the Cal, uh, the, Cal, the Calhoun scholar is Clyde Wilson. I mean, he edited his papers for most of his professional career. If anybody knows anything about Calhoun, it's Clyde Wilson. It's why Clyde Wilson wrote the chapter to Forgotten and Forgotten Conservatives in American History with yours truly on Calhoun. I mean, I'm not going to write it if Clyde Wilson's going to be writing in the book. But this is important to see that we have this renaissance of Calhounian thought among conservatives. I mean, look, the charge is always going to be, well, see, there you go. You like Calhoun means you're a racist. Means that you're pro-slavery. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means you're looking at Calhoun and what he said about government as, yeah, this guy's right about what he's saying about these things. And people all over the world study Calhoun, by the way. Not just here in the United States. People all over the world. Thus, the American Revolution was not a revolution in society, writes Wilson, but the action of the existing societies of the 13 colonies to preserve themselves against the interference of a distant government, the preservation of living societies from the schemes of rulers. This view of the American War for Independence as a non-revolution is important. It's something that Mel Bradford talked a lot about. It's something that I think is lost in all of our current discussion about what the American War for Independence was. It was not a radical revolution. It was a maintenance of the things that they already had in place against arbitrary power, what they thought was arbitrary power, which was Parliament. They didn't necessarily deny the king's authority, though there was some of that too, but... They were concerned about arbitrary power from Parliament, power that they didn't think Parliament had. And that, of course, goes back to the Glorious Revolution of 1688 and how the structure of the relationship with the colonies, the crown change. There's been a lot written about this, even recently. There's a book by Alison LaCroix uh, on federalism. She talks about this a little bit. And there's been people writing about this for years. Jack Green has done a great job with this. But it's that relationship of power that's important, you see. But these societies were not going undergoing radical revolutionary changes. In many cases, particularly in New England, they just left the colonial charter in place when they became a state, a free and independent state. In other places like Virginia, of course also New York, Pennsylvania, they were writing new constitutions. Massachusetts, they were writing new constitutions. But it took time. Uh, Virginia was the first to do it. It's why Jefferson wanted to get out of, of, uh, of Virginia, uh, I'm sorry, of, of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, and go to Virginia and work on the real document, which was the Virginia Constitution. You want to be sitting around writing the stupid declaration. So the piece says, this is the true meaning of consent of the governed. Consent was given to ratify the Constitution by the separate political communities of the sovereign states. And they reserve the right to withdraw that consent should the government that they, that they created as their agent interfere with their happiness, as the ratification documents of New York, Virginia, and Rhode Island specifically declared. The Constitution was not ratified by a majority vote of the general population, but by separate political communities organized at the state level by the free and independent states, as they are called in the Declaration of Independence at state political conventions. This was required by Article 7 of the Constitution itself. I mean, again... I can't believe this is in the New American because the New American for years, now, I mean, they do write, they have written stuff like this, but for years has been very much more Lincolnian and Hamiltonian than anything else. 
they're, they're ardent nationalists. To have a paper that has the stamp of the New American, an article, say that we have a federal system, a federated system, where secession is on the table is a major shift. If you don't know about the drum, and this is a this is like an earthquake that they would do this. It's huge because the John Birch Society for years has been against any of this kind of stuff. And they've been against anything that really criticizes Lincoln or Hamilton. So for them to come out and do this, to take a Jeffersonian position, is a huge shift in policy. And it might anger some of their readers and some of their subscribers, some of their supporters. But it's the right thing to do because it's following truly in line with the American political tradition. To the Jeffersonians, consent did not mean a mere majority of any popular vote, especially since elections and vote counting could always be rigged, as they fully understood being keen students of political history. A leading error, Calhoun wrote, is to confound the numerical majority with the people and their consent. This will eventually destroy constitutional government, said Calhoun, for it implies that all that is needed for perfect government is, quote, the right of suffrage and the allotment to each division of the community a representation of the government in proportion to numbers. In reality, majority rule is nothing more than one part of society coercing and plundering another part, the minority, the very violence of faction that James Madison warned of in the Federalist Number 10, writing that historically it had destroyed popular governments everywhere by creating a perversive sense of injustice. The whole purpose of the Constitution, said Madison, was to limit this violence of faction by electoral majorities. I mean, again, right. This, this, all this is correct. There's nothing I found in this piece. That I'm not going to read the whole thing. There's a lot to it. It's a long piece. But nothing I found that was incorrect. This is all right. Calhoun was battling the top Hamiltonian nationalist status of his day, such as Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story and U.S. Senator Daniel Webster. In his famous 1833 commentaries on the Constitution of the United States, Story wrote that, quote, the majority must have a right to accomplish that object by the means which they deem adequate for the end, the will of the majority of the people is absolute and sovereign, limited only by its means and power to make its will effectual. This power, of course, is the coercive power of a heavy, heavy armed, heavily armed government. Trust in the efficacy of frequent elections, said Massachusetts Senator Daniel Webster in his 1830 Senate debate over protection of tariffs and nullification with Senator Robert Hayne of South Carolina. Trust in the efficacy of frequent elections. History has proven that that to be one of the most farcical statements ever made by an American politician. But you see, Webster is often cla classified as a conservative, battling these radical Southerners with this radical position of nullification. For years, I think even the New American and the John Birch Society would have said the exact same thing, but not anymore. Because I think everyone who has a brain is finally starting to wake up and see, oh my gosh, wait a second here. If we keep pushing this position, we keep losing so we might need to change tactics. What all of this means is that the Constitution was meant to be society's vehicle for controlling the state, not the state's vehicle for controlling society, as it is today, where the limits of everyone's freedoms are periodically decreed by five black-robed government lawyers with lifetime tenure. The bigger error, Calhoun wrote, is, quote, the prevalent opinion that a written Constitution is sufficient of itself without, without the aid of any organism except such as is necessary to separate its separate departments and render them independent of each other to counteract the tendency of the numerical majority to oppression and the abuse of power. 
A written constitution is enough. If we just have that, we won't get any abuse of powers. Calhoun said that's an error. It's an error to do that. We need a check. You need a mechanism. You need something to ensure, besides separation of powers, that there is a check on this. And the check for Calhoun was what he called the concurrent majority or in, and through the states, right? The states could check the power of the center. The piece says the separation of powers would never be sufficient to enforce the Constitution. In other words, contrary to Madison's theory on the subject, history has proven Calhoun to be right and Madison wrong on that point. 100% agree with that. The party in power, whichever party, will be opposed to the constitutional restrictions intended to limit it. This is exactly what Calhoun said. They would regard these limitations as unnecessary and improper restraints and endeavor to elude them with the view of increasing their power and influence. This is why Calhoun is brilliant. You're looking at what, when Calhoun wrote this, of course it wasn't published until after he died, but when Calhoun wrote this, and you look at what he said in the 1840s, through experience, right? He had been in the general government in one way or another from the time of the War of 1812 until his death. So for decades he had been there. He had seen firsthand what all these scoundrels were doing. And he's writing this because he knows what's going to happen. And you see what he says here. And you look at what's happening in society. It's exactly what he predicted. It's exactly what was going on in his own time. But it's exactly what he predicted. And yet somehow we shouldn't listen to Calhoun because he was a racist. Because of slavery. Those two things are true. Those, he was pro-slavery. He was a racist. I mean, so was everybody in the 19th century. Not everyone was pro-slavery. Calhoun was because that was the society in which he lived. But you can separate those things from Calhoun, the political philosopher, because Calhoun understood what was happening. The minor or weaker party, on the other hand, will make its strict construction arguments for actually enforcing the Constitution, but the party in favor of the restrictions will inevitably be overpowered, wrote Calhoun. It is folly, he said, to believe that the party in power and in possession of the ballot box and the fiscal force of the country could be successfully resisted by an appeal to reason, truth, justice, or the obligations imposed by the Constitution. The end of the contest will be the subversion of the Constitution. I mean, this was great. I mean, Calhoun is 100% right about all of this. This is why when people actually go out and they read Calhoun, it's like a... It's like you've lifted the veil on everything. And you say, oh my gosh, hold on here. It's an, you have an epiphany. It's a, it's a moment. Anybody that's interested in politics and they go and read this will have that moment. And for some people, it's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable because they don't want to like Calhoun. They can't like Calhoun. They can't. And you have the West Coast Straussians blasting Calhoun all the time. This is, I think, some of this, you know, is coming from the fact that the West Coast Straussians and the and the John Birch Society. I mean, they don't really get along. So, um, the West Coast Straussians picking on Calhoun would make him a a nice, uh, uh, you know, kind of counterweight to that. But I mean, these are things we've been saying. I've been saying for years. Our side's been saying for years. Southern conservatives have been saying for years. It's not new for us, just new for some of these people to actually pick up on it. This will occur, said Calhoun, because of a kind of class struggle in society, but not the Marxist class struggle between the capitalists and working classes. 
Instead of democracy, some one portion of the community must pay in taxes more than it receives back in disbursements, while another receives its disbursements more than it pays in taxes. Society will be divided into two classes, the net taxpayers versus net tax consumers. The necessary result is to divide the community into two great classes, one consisting of those who pay the taxes and, of course, bear exclusively the burden of supporting the government, and the other of those who are the recipients of their proceeds. Now, I'm, we don't really have it so clean cut in America now. We have the middle class, which pays a lot of taxes and receives the least amount of benefit from the government. And then we have the rich who also pay. I mean, there are people that pay a lot of taxes. Now, if they can avoid it, they will through creative use of the tax code. But they also receive benefits from it. This is corporate welfare. On the other side, you have the net receivers, those who uh, don't pay anything, but they also get benefits back. That's a good half of the population now. We don't really pay as much in taxes, about half the population. Income tax is one thing. Everybody pays some taxes. If you go get a tag, if you go get a driver's license, you go to the store and you got a sales tax. I mean, you're going to pay some taxes, right? You get a cell phone, you got tax on there. Everybody pays a little bit. But income tax is the, is the one that you see it the most, right? And so that's the one that people focus on the most. And, of course, you can look at payroll taxes. If you're on a payroll, you're paying taxes. You know, you're going to withhold that 7%. That's still a tax. You don't get that back. The right of suffrage causes this condition and can in no way counteract it. It does not perfect government, but it turns it into an authoritarian tyranny of absolute government, as Calhoun called it. Then I find it fascinating because in this particular piece, they cite Hans Hermann Hoppe, the libertarian, and his democracy, the God that failed. I, I find this just completely fascinating. But I want to skip down to where he talks about uh, Calhoun again. The piece says, Calhoun was always a unionist and viewed nullification of laws thought to be unconstitutional as an alternative to secession. This is 100% correct. In this, he was following the footsteps of Jefferson and Madison, authors of the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions, respectively, which nullified the abolition of free speech invoked by the Adams Administration Sedition Act by declaring that it would not be enforced within their borders. Jefferson's Kentucky Resolution, for example, stated, Resolve that the several states comprising or composing the United States of America are not united on the principles of unlimited submission to their general government. And when served, the general government assumes undelegated powers, its acts are unauthoritative, void, and of no force. Madison's Virginia Resolution said virtually the same thing. New England, Ohio, Wisconsin, Delaware, and South Carolina would invoke Jeffersonian nullification on a variety of issues, from banking to immigration policy to trade policy, that they believe were unconstitutional during the antebellum era. I mean, this is all true, right? Calhoun also believed nullification would encourage the enforcement of constitutional limits on government by letting the powers that, that be know the unconstitutional legislation designed by one faction of the country only to plunder the other faction could be ignored or nullified, rendering their plundering efforts useless. Compromise rather than plunder would then be encouraged, he argued. Moreover, with protections of a concurrent majority in place, the franchise would be expanded, wrote Calhoun. Under simple majoritarian rule, on the other hand, the expansion of the franchise would guarantee an expansion of political plunder by more and more enfranchised factions. The protections of a concurrent majority would encourage patriotism, nationality, harmony, and promoting the common good instead of faction strife 
and struggle for party ascendancy. As an added benefit, Calhoun argued the type of people attracted to government would be less sleazy and corrupt and more patriotic and public-spirited. Again, these are all Calhounian arguments, which all make sense. Now, there are others that say, you, these, these things stink. So he goes on to talk about Calhoun's economics, Calhoun's foreign policy, very much positive about both of those things. But the last three paragraphs I found just fascinating, again because of, or four paragraphs, again because of the new American and their long-standing positions on secession and nationalism. This is all about secession. Calhoun's roadmap for a new America. Now remember, Calhoun, as I said, was a unionist. Nullification is always a unionist position. Uh, the 10th Amendment Center, the 10th Amendment is always a unionist position. Disunion is something that Calhoun wasn't really in favor of, though he saw it coming <clears throat> and he thought it could happen. So the piece says, America is already experiencing a soft secession movement with conservative citizens leading the charge and moving away from the socialist disasters of New York, California, Illinois, and almost all of the big cities run by the hard-left Democratic Party political machines. They are moving to more conservative or even libertarian parts of the country such as Florida, Texas, South Carolina, Montana, Idaho, and elsewhere. Peaceful American disunion is inevitable in the opinion of your author. It may not happen tomorrow or next week, but it will happen. We're at the end of the road of a country of some 330 million people ruled essentially by a few hundred people, or perhaps a few dozen, political oligarchs who control one or the other of the two major political parties. The day will come when there will be a new America and new Americans. The old America will remain in the socialist hellholes of New York City, Chicago, Baltimore, San Francisco, while the segment of the population that still values freedom and prosperity over tax slavery and imperialism will go elsewhere. They will take to heart the advice of the author of the Declaration of Independence that when government becomes destructive with the consent of the governed, it is the people's right to alter or abolish it and to institute new government more conducive to their safety and happiness. The ideas of John C. Calhoun, the inheritor of the Jeffersonian political tradition in America, provide a roadmap for these freedom-seeking Americans of the future. As for the role of government in the new American societies of the future, Calhoun would counsel peace and a wise and masterful inactivity that would give all Americans the greatest chance to enjoy prosperity and to live as free human beings. And then the last paragraph, the last sentence is just, I mean, for the new American to write this, it's profound. Thomas Jefferson himself would most assuredly approve of a, a coming American disunion. In an August 12, 1803 letter to John C. Breckinridge regarding the New England secession movement, which culminated in the 1814 Hartford Secession Convention, Jefferson wrote that should there be a separation to two confederacies, God bless them both and keep them in the union if it be for their good, but separate them if it be better. Now, 1803 was important because that's the Louisiana Purchase. That's what was happening. They had already threatened secession when Jefferson was, uh, you know, won the presidency. They were threatening it then. In 1803, it's even worse. They kept threatening it over and over again. But this is the point. The New American publishing this, publishing a soft acceptance of secession and disunion and nullification as a huge cataclysmic shift in American conservatism. Because they were never on board with this kind of stuff. It had always been, um, you know, it had always been opposed to these things. In fact, when I wrote how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America, it was hard to get a review at the New American because of that. This was just six years ago. Seven years ago, six, seven years ago. So much has changed 
in six to seven years. But here we are. John C. Calhoun is someone, if you're a conservative, we should be looking at. And not just conservatives. I mean, lefties could benefit from this stuff too. And and this is where people like Victor Davis Hanson and others, although the lefties are the Calhounians, the lefties are the nullification, the neo-confederates, all this stuff. Because this protects minorities, political minorities, from majoritarian government. It allows you to check the power of the center. And so it's an interesting political philosophy that um, Calhoun was using his experience in the government to say, this is what can, what's going to happen if we keep down this path. It's never going to get any better. we got to have something that's going to make sure checks and balances work. And that was his concurrent majority. All right. Hope you enjoyed this week at the Brian McClanahan Show. If you want to get me five times, I do podcast. Uh, right now, we've done several at the Abbeville Institute, but the new podcast, the Central Southern Podcast, comes out perhaps once a week, maybe once every two weeks. We'll see how it goes uh, with that podcast. But you can also catch that one if you're interested in getting me sometimes five days a week, the Essential Southern Podcast. Just look for it wherever podcasts are produced. See you next week on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.